Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 420, The Wake and the Earl. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Joaquin, James, and John for signing up already. Harroward was returning to Ely with his men. And the upside was they were taking literal boatloads of treasure with them. The downside, though, was that they were a little light on matches, as the Danes had just lit Peterborough on fire. Now, in their defense, while the army had burned down the homes in the town, and they destroyed the gate, they had shown some degree of restraint and stopped short of burning down the abbey itself. They looted it, of course, but it was, like, still totally there. However, as Harroward looked across the boat deck and surveyed the captured monk sitting there, he may have wondered if this one had gotten away from him a little bit. Because, yeah, the Danes hadn't just looted Peterborough. They decided to take a few captives while they were at it. And I have to wonder how tense that boat ride back to Ely was, because this doesn't seem to have been what Harward had in mind at all. Now, of course, we can't be 100% certain what Harward intended for Peterborough, because the records about this incident are confused. We have contradictory accounts of both the motivations and the timing of the attack, but it's likely that the attack took place right at about this point in 1070. And I think that the scribe, Hugh Candidus probably had the right of it as to why it all went down. Hugh tells us that Harroward's goal was actually to protect the abbey, as well as his treasures, from the Normans. And this actually makes sense, because the Normans had previously asked Harroward to act as their protector, and the abbey was under threat from William. Earlier that year, William had ordered his officials to plunder the monasteries of England. And Gervais of Canterbury claims that this plundering included the seizure of charters, meaning he wasn't just pillaging the treasures held by these religious communities. He was taking the paperwork, too, meaning that whatever record the communities had regarding their rights to their lands was being seized. And no record, no rights. And when you look at the number of charters that were later replaced and even forged following this period, it does seem like Gervais was telling the truth here. And the fact is that William at this point was tight on cash. And so if he wanted to fix that by robbing a few banks, well, that was going to lead him straight to the monasteries. Because monasteries were where the English tended to hold their wealth. And I'm not just talking about tithes and church wealth here. I'm talking about English aristocratic wealth as well. Thane Elfgar couldn't walk down to Barclays and make a deposit. And so if he didn't feel safe keeping his money under the floorboards or wherever, then the local monastery was the next best place for his money. You know, should a bandit come knocking. If that money was in God's house, then God could keep an eye on it. And while bandits might be fine violating the Ten Commandments among the lay people, they might get a bit squeamish about doing it in a church. 
Or at least that's the thought. But thanks to the Pope granting his approval and that whole penitential ordinance, well, that supernatural guarantee scheme had just been thrown out the window. The great hall monitor of Rome had said that the Normans had a free pass from God, and the Normans weren't holding back now. Making this even worse, you had the fact that William could actually make the argument that by raiding the monasteries, he really was just seizing the money and the property of rebels who had acted illegally and were trying to hide their illegal money. So, if your father fought at Hastings and died there, he might have done it legally in his eyes, but in the eyes of William, your father was a rebel. And so, he had a legal claim to everything your father owned. And that would put your family's lands and your family's wealth directly in his crosshairs as he looked to extract the wealth of the kingdom and settle the country with Normans. But let's say you saw this coming. Let's say that as William and the Normans were rampaging through England in the aftermath of Hastings, you wisely squirreled away some of your family's money and your legal documents at the local abbey. Well, now that was being taken too. William was systematically impoverishing the English landowners through punitive gelds, extortions, and now outright theft. And despite the occasional mention of the law, don't think for a second that this was being done in an orderly fashion. The Doomsday Book has earned the Normans a reputation for being detail-oriented and thorough. But that famous attention to detail was typically reserved for tax collection. While things like the seizure of property, well, that was much less rigorously researched. And like any civil forfeiture scheme, the Normans were grabbing whatever looked good, including church property. And then I guess it was up to the monks to argue their innocence? And good luck with that. Even today, people find themselves in a similar situation in the U.S., thanks to a similar set of laws. Upon being pulled over in your car, if you've got cash and gift cards in your wallet, well, you might be asked to prove that you weren't planning to do something illegal with that. And if you're not convincing enough, then Officer Ralph is keeping the money, even if he doesn't charge you with a crime. So you're out $200, and Officer Ralph is now the new department hero because he just scored the funds to buy the station a new margarita machine. This really happened, by the way. It's an impossible situation once you find yourself in it, and modern cops are under far more constraints than medieval knights. Or so I'm told. So, when Torold was appointed, it didn't require Crystal Ball to figure out what he was going to do next. And when the powerful are stealing from the powerless, and they have the full backing of the law, who can the victims turn to? those who exist outside of the law, the outlaws. And we're told that's exactly what some of the religious leaders of East Anglia did by seeking out Harroward. And so I think it's very likely that Harroward had been trying to fulfill his duty, and he had intended to protect the wealth that was stored in the abbey from William and his goons. But then again, if he was saving the abbey, then why burn down the town? As soon as those fires were lit, this thing began to look a lot more like a raid than anything else. 
and the scribes writing the Peterborough Chronicle felt that it was precisely that. So what gives? Well, once again, I suspect that Hugh Candidus gives us the key to the whole thing. He tells us that Harrower did in fact want to save the treasures of Peterborough, but he also wanted the support of the Danes. And the men who had been recently welcomed by the people of the Fens weren't just any Danes. These were Danes being led by Asbjorn. And as we've spoken about in previous episodes, Asbjorn had some pretty specific goals that didn't necessarily line up with the goals of the English. They didn't even seem to line up with the goals of his own brother, King Swain Etrasen. You see, Asbjorn wasn't looking to liberate a kingdom or to gain a new territory for his brother. Asbjorn was old school, and he was honoring a centuries-old tradition. Asbjorn had come to England to get rich. And granted, it is possible that Harroward was just naive and taken by surprise when the Danish army did what the Danish army was always going to do. However, Harroward had done his share of travel and he'd fought in foreign armies, so I doubt he was naive. I think it's much more likely that Harroward was all too aware of who Asbjorn was, and that raid on Peterborough was a bit of political fundraising intended to keep his allies here in England by deliberately presenting them with a bounded opportunity for plunder. I imagine the deal was something along the lines of he would rescue the treasures of the abbey and the Danes would be allowed to loot the town, which is basically how it had all begun, you know, before it went completely pear-shaped and they started capturing monks and nicking Christ's shiny footrest. But there wasn't much Harrowward could do about that now. And now that they were back in Ely, they needed to prepare for their next move. And the atmosphere on the island must have been overwhelming. According to the Gesta, Harrowward was there at the request of Abbot Thurston of Ely, who had personally asked him to defend the isle. And he wasn't alone. We're given a laundry list of various companions of his. Knights, outlaws, churchmen, family members, you name it. Even his wife was there with him. And the Gesta was allegedly compiled by Harroward's priest, Leofrich the Deacon. And the document paints a landscape of a general uprising. Which means we're not just talking about members of an army. Everyone, it seems, was showing up at Ely. The encampment was likely teeming with men and women. And quite possibly children, too. Because if you were launching a rebellion against a king who was known for exterminating entire villages, it's not like you would want to leave the kids at home. And so at this point, Ely would have been filled to the brim with people of all ages and all walks of life, both from England and also beyond. And as I mentioned, Harroward was also joined by his wife, Terfrida. That noble girl who had been so enamored by the tales of this rebellious figure that she had fallen in love with him before she even met him. And while we're not given descriptions of what she did during the rebellion, we do have an intriguing detail in the Gesta. We're told that Terfrida, quote, was already superior to the usual feminine weaknesses and regularly proved capable in every exigency which befell her celebrated husband, end quote. And setting aside the casual misogyny of the medieval scribes, what they're trying to tell us here is that Terfrida was Harroward's equal. 
and that all the offense that would come to befall Hereward, she was there as well and was capable just as much as he was. And considering that Hereward was repeatedly praised in these accounts for being a brilliant guerrilla fighter and all-around murder machine, well, it sounds like he might have found his soulmate, which actually isn't that uncommon. I don't know where we get this idea that freedom fighters settle down with peaceful damsels who are gifted knitters and don't have a rebellious bone in their bodies. Because that doesn't seem to happen a lot. You know who firebrands tend to marry? Other firebrands. So as we go forward with Harroward's story, you're going to hear a lot about what he and his band were up to. What the Chronicle calls his gang. They literally say that. Harroward's Genga. Well, when we talk about that, remember this entry in the Gesta. Turfrida was there, and she was just as capable as the legendary hero of this story. Which, you know, makes her a hero in this story as well. And we probably know a bit more about her if it wasn't for the fact that women tended to give the scribes the willies. And while I'm talking about it, erasing women from their own deeds and accomplishments isn't just a problem with medieval scribes. I rely on about a dozen books for this period. And do you know how many mention this passage from the Gesta? Go ahead, take a guess. Not f***ing one. If it wasn't for the fact that this show is supported by members, and as such I can afford to get translations of primary sources, I wouldn't know about this passage at all. It's infuriating. And we can, of course, argue about whether or not the Gesta is reliable. And there are elements that smack of legend. And there's also the uncomfortable fact that we don't have the original document and are instead left with a 13th century compilation containing a Latin text that claims to be from the 12th century, which was in turn based on the original earlier document, which was written in Old English, but is now lost and was also damaged, and so due to that damaged condition, the scribe had to fill in the missing detail with material from local oral history. So the Gesta is a complex document, and like all our records, it's not perfect. But this has never stopped historians from using it for insight into other parts of this story. It's a key document, and so it's particularly galling to see historians cite other parts of the Gesta and not even offer up a quibble, and they go on to completely ignore this part of Turfrida. And given how often this happens to accounts that don't fit the Victorian ideal of femininity, it's hard to ignore the implicit bias in play here. So while we do have to focus on Hereward and a few other figures, because those were the figures that the scribes and later writers deemed noteworthy, and as such, they're the people we know the most about, don't forget Turfrida. And also, don't forget any of the other unnamed men and women whose lives and efforts were just as important and who were also occupying this rebel base on Ely. They were there. They existed. But speaking of that rebel base, you know what wasn't there? The treasure and the relics from Peterborough. While everyone had disembarked at Ely, that treasure had stayed on board the Danish ships. And that almost certainly wasn't the plan. It also seems like the captured monks were also kept on board. And that really looked bad. I can't imagine the churchmen at Ely, nor the devout followers of Hereward, 
were all that happy with how this was playing out. But what were they going to do? Fight the Danes within their own base? Hardly. They needed allies. They needed support. And the uncomfortable truth was that they were at the mercy of the Danes. And Hereward would have known it. So would have Asbjorn. And here's where this gets even worse. King Swain knew it too. The fact of the matter was 1070 wasn't 1069. In 1069, the rebels had a good chance at winning. But Swain had shown up too late. And Asbjorn had sold out his allies. And William had used that time to exterminate the north and crush the revolts in the Midlands and the south. So by 1070, there was pretty much just Hereward and his followers. It wasn't the easy conquest that had been promised. And I don't think the Danes cared all that much that a lot of this catastrophe was the fault of Swain and Asbjorn. The fact was, this was a bad bet. And Swain was almost certainly looking for a way to cash out. And he didn't need to look far. By remaining at the Humber, while his brother Asbjorn was at Ely, King Swain had ensured that he would be an easy man to find. And while Asbjorn was looting Peterborough, a messenger found Swain and delivered William's terms. And they were pretty good terms. Swain was given pretty much the same deal that his brother had been given the year before. Leave England and allow William to continue his extermination and you will be richly rewarded. Back on Ely, on June 24th of 1070, Hereward was trying to figure out what to do about the monks and the priests that were stuck on board the ships of his new Danish allies. You know, not to mention all the sacred relics and stuff he'd intended to rescue. And then another group of Danes arrived. And any hopes that this was a reinforcement from King Swain would have quickly evaporated as the Danes began to pack up. Asbjorn and the Danes were abandoning the English. Again. The writing was on the wall. These Danes were supposed to deliver victory, but instead, they were undercutting the East Anglian rebellion. And while Hereward couldn't unring that bell, he somehow managed to negotiate the return of some of the religious hostages. But according to one account, he didn't get all of them. The Danes decided they'd keep Prior Athelwald and a few monks. They also kept the treasure, and satisfied with the profit that they gained from this adventure, the Danish fleet then set sail, bound for Denmark. But then one of those things happened that makes you wonder if Mother Nature occasionally takes a side. The records tell us that once the Danes were in the channel, a huge storm rose up, and scattered the fleet. This gale was so powerful that ships were blown off course as far as Ireland and Norway. Only a portion of the fleet managed to drag themselves back to Denmark. And as such, only a small bit of the plunder made it back to King Swain's estates. Now, piecing the various accounts together and trying to make sense of them, it seems that at around this point, the remaining religious hostages were released, apparently as some sort of arrangement with Hereward. And when they were released, they took the remaining relics with them. 
I'm not entirely sure if that was actually part of the deal or if the freak channel storm had given the Danes the heebie-jeebies and they decided to try and get in God's good graces. Either way, while the treasure was lost, the relics, at least some of the relics, were headed back home. Well, not quite home. They didn't go to Peterborough. The monks and the relics went to Ramsey. And that, I have to admit, was a smart call. They just narrowly escaped a grim fate with the Danes. So no need to tempt things farther by going to meet with Abbot Turold and his Norman knights. And then the chronicle continues. We're told that King Swain was among those who had made it back to Denmark, as did a portion of the treasure. And so upon their return, he ordered his men to place the surviving treasure in a church at one of his royal manors. And then with the treasure safely deposited, the Danish warriors decided to celebrate their success by getting absolutely bladdered. They got so sloshed, in fact, that before the night was over, they had accidentally burned the church down and all the treasure in it. The Danes might not have known about karma, but karma seems to have known about them. And as far as that Fink Asbjorn went, well, Swain was still pretty annoyed about that whole bribery business back in 1069. And Asbjorn found himself declared outlaw. So, you know, just an all-around great job by everyone and definitely worth completely undercutting the English rebellion at every possible turn. Great job. Back in England, now that William had dealt with the threat of a Danish invasion once and for all, he set about further militarizing England and impoverishing the English. Because the fact was, there still was an English rebellion out there, and William had decided that the English should have to pay to bring it to an end. And he quite liked Abbot Turold's idea about making the monastic community at Peterborough pay for and maintain a garrison of knights. Making the English pay for their own oppression pretty much sounded like a win-win situation for the Normans. And so he expanded the policy. Now, it wouldn't just be the Abbey of Peterborough, but all of the southern monasteries who would be required to maintain a force of 40 knights on site. Though, given the recent events at Peterborough and Ely, 40 would not do for those communities. So Peterborough and Ely were told they would have to pay for 60 knights. And while the community at Peterborough, under the strict command of Abbot Turold, met the king's demands, I'm betting that Ely was letting that call go to voicemail. Especially given what was happening at Ely right about now. You see, the abandonment of the Danes was quite a blow. But Harroward still had a few tricks up his sleeve. And the Gesta tells us that Harroward had lit fires in three villages near his family lands of Bourne. This was a signal that he'd arranged with his followers from his previous rebel adventures. People who had already fought with the Normans and evaded William's assassins during his first campaign. So Harroward had quite literally lit the beacons. And the Silvatici were answering the call and making their way to Ely. Joining the cause was Hugo the Breton, a warrior priest, along with his brother, Wivhard the Knight. 
Another knight named Winter also came, and he was known for his unnatural strength and short stature. Alongside him were two famously enormous fighters, Wenoth and Elfrich Grugen, whose size was only matched by their fearlessness. In came Harroward's nephews, Godwinna, Siward, and the other Siward, the Red, as well as the identical twins, Duty and Uti. There was Wolfrich the Black, who was known for blackening his face so he could better sneak into garrisons and assassinate knights in their own fortresses. He'd once killed ten with a single spear. And Wolfrich the Black was joined by his friend, Wolfrich the Heron, who had interrupted an execution with a surprise attack on the executioner and his guards, saving four brothers from an unjust death. Leofwina the Sickle also answered the call. And he got that name from the day where he was set upon by an armed mob while he was harvesting his crops. And having only a sickle in hand, he'd fought them off, killing some and wounding many, quote, charging among them like a reaper, end quote, until he drove them all off. There was also Leofwina the Dodger, who got his name because while he was often captured by the law, he was a master of escape. And like any good rebel, he usually managed to kill a few guards on his way out. There was also Tunbjort, the great nephew of Earl Edwin, Godrich of Corby, the nephew of the Earl of Warwick, Tostig of Daveness, kin of the Godwinsons, Akahardi, the son of a wealthy landowner in Lincolnshire, Leofrich the Deacon, the writer of the Gesta, Thurkettle the Outlaw, Steward Rapinald of Ramsey, Tostig of Rothwell, and many others. These were experienced war leaders in Silvatici, and they had come here to take up leadership positions alongside Harroward. And don't forget that Turfrida was said to be his equal in all things. So I wouldn't be surprised if she was organizing the resistance as well. We're not told how Harroward's growing army was arranged, but modern guerrilla armies often work in columns. Small cells or bands working under individual leaders tasked with various missions. So that way the rebel army can strike multiple weak spots at once. Now, our sources don't give us that level of detail, so we can't know if they did something similar. But it is an effective and logical tactic, especially when you have a variety of fighters who were suited for leadership roles. So maybe? Either way, this army had to have been organized in some way because their numbers were growing and still more were coming. Losing the promise of the Danish army was a devastating blow to the rebellion. But their flight and the dishonor of that situation had turned Ely into a rallying point for the English. All those who had been disinherited and outlawed and generally abused by the Norman ruling class were now coming together to reclaim their dignity and honor, and possibly their kingdom. And there were a lot of them. The Gesta speaks about this gathering army in terms that evoke thoughts of King Arthur, or Robin Hood, or even the Magnificent Seven. Legendary warriors banding together to fight an impossible enemy. And it didn't take long for King William to notice what was happening in East Anglia. And he probably noticed it because this was Harroward. There was no way he was just staying on Ely working on his memoirs. He was a guerrilla, as were his followers. And so they were out there doing guerrilla shit. 
And the reason why I'm so certain of this is because the Gesta tells us that an official was dispatched to deal with Hereward. His name was Earl William de Warren, and he began setting up ambushes along the roads and paths leading through the swamp. The Gesta says that Earl de Warren wanted to take Hereward alive, and while he was acting on official orders, this mission might have been pretty personal for him, because Earl William was the brother of Frederick, the assassin who had previously been sent out to get Hereward. The same assassin whose head was left at a crossroads as a warning by Hereward. So Earl de Warren had reason to hold a grudge. He also had reason to be very careful. So according to the Gesta, he sent his men ahead. And he was hoping to catch the wake without a direct confrontation. But if that didn't work, no worries. He would be following soon behind with a larger force and be ready for that direct confrontation. He had it all planned out. He was ready. But unfortunately for the Earl, he was about as good at counterinsurgency as his brother was at assassination. The men that he'd assigned to the ambushes weren't Silvatici. They were knights. So hiding in a swamp for days, hoping to catch a gorilla, wasn't something they trained for. They were used to French fields, and horses, and, I assume, croissants. This was well outside of their job description. And all this time in the swamp, sitting just 10 miles west of an encampment that was led by a man who was famous for lopping off the heads of knights who were just like them, well, it was making them a bit jumpy. And so, when they finally spotted some of Harroward's scouts, their nerves got the better of them. And the knights did what knights do. They attacked the English scouts. Thoughtlessly, quickly, loudly. And the scouts, of course, immediately raised the alarm. Because here's the thing about scouts. They're usually scouting for a larger force that's following some distance behind. And sure enough, Hereward and his band heard the cry and they rushed to the defense of his men and captured the attacking Normans, which meant that the knights were now at the mercy of Hereward, the man who had announced his first return to England by cutting down a whole manner of Norman knights with only his personal companion to help him out, the man who had become famous for hunting down and murdering any Norman knights or lords he could find in the field, the man who assassinated assassins that Hereward, and he wanted to ask them some questions. And after some level of persuasion, they told the rebel leader everything he wanted to know. They told him that they were working for Earl de Warren. They told him that the Earl had ordered them to set up ambushes in the area. They told him that he was planning to come there himself on the following day. They spilled the entire can of beans and then some. And armed with that information, Hereward planned his own ambush. He knew that the Earl would be arriving by boat, coming down the river that crossed beside Erith. So he ordered his men to hide in the marshy terrain. And this was something that they'd no doubt done many times before. And once in place, they waited. And they didn't need to wait long. 
The Earl and his men soon arrived and moored their ships on the opposite bank. Once they are disembarked, Harroward, three soldiers, and four archers stepped out into the open. The Gesta tells us that when the Earl's men saw the small group of Englishmen, they shouted across the river, quote, Are you from the company of that great scoundrel Harroward, who has ruined so much by trickery and has drawn so many to help him to his nefarious deeds? Would that the villain could be betrayed to our lord the Earl. Anyone who agreed to do so would be well worth payment and honors. For this hostile band, although not dangerous, may eventually force us to live in this detestable swamp and to chase them unarmed through muddy marsh, swirling water, and sharp reeds. Every one of them is destined to an early death, for the king has already surrounded the whole island on all sides with his army and has closed off the area so that he may destroy its inhabitants." End quote. And you know, that's a lot. And on the one hand, it sounds way too wordy to be real. But on the other hand, I'm real and I'm quite wordy. So maybe this really happened as written and the knight was just a podcaster at heart. Or Leofridge needed an editor. Or that. Either way, the response from the other bank was much more to the point. Harroward, or one of his men, translated into modern swagger, basically shouted across the river, Oh, he's here. What are you going to do about it? And that had the desired effect. Earl de Warren, realizing that one of these Englishmen had to have been Harroward, absolutely lost it. He began screaming at his men that one of these guys was Harroward, the man that they were here to capture, the man who had killed his brother. And he demanded that all of them jump right into the river, swim across, and capture the wake. And the knights looked at the earl, and then they looked at each other, and they went, no, eh, and no. Because this was obviously a trap. Like, come on. Even just the four archers guaranteed that if they tried to swim across the river, they're going to end up looking like a seal door, floating like wet pincushions all the way down to the channel. No, thank you. So the knights stayed right where they were. And that did not soothe the Earl's meltdown. We're told that he started screaming across the river, quote, Oh, would that your master, that limb of Satan, were in my grasp now. He should truly taste punishment and death, end quote. And Hereward, upon hearing this, shouted back, quote, You wouldn't be so keen to have me in your feeble grasp, nor be glad that we met, end quote. And then he drew an arrow and loosed it directly into the Earl's chest. The Earl was knocked backwards off his horse and lay lifeless on the ground. His men, now leaderless, rushed forward and grabbed the Earl's body and dragged it out of range of the English archers. And Harroward and his men, happy with how this all went down, retreated back to their base at Ely, where they were met with an absolute party. And for good reason. That was some kick-ass Robin Hood sh** right there. And the Wake and his band of legends were just getting started. And we're even told that this group of legends included none other than our old friends Edwin and Morcar. And yeah, the Earls turned rebels, turned collaborators, turned rebels, turned collaborators, 
were once again turning rebels. And I'd make fun of them for it if it wasn't for the fact that when I was a teen, I was just as moody and inconsistent. But speaking of surprising turns of narrative, apparently Earl William de Warren had been lucky. He'd been wearing his coat of mail. And so rather than being struck dead, he just had the wind knocked out of him. And it now probably hurt a lot when he tried to take a deep breath. But hey, he was still alive, which was more than his brother could say. But as the gathering at Ely was celebrating their growing army, and as Earl William was in his camp trying to walk it off, back in Peterborough, Abbot Turold was holding mass. Because don't forget, the abbey hadn't been burned by that attack. Despite the plundering, it remained standing. And given the efforts that Hereward had undertaken to secure the freedom of the monks and the release of some of the relics, I'm inclined to think that it was his intervention that saved the abbey from destruction and thus enabled Torold to continue to hold mass. It was a kind thing to do. But it seems that there was one person who didn't appreciate Harroward's efforts. One person who, even though he was holding mass in the abbey, kind of wished it wasn't there. You see, Abbot Torold was of the opinion that the Abbey of Peterborough was just too goddamn English. This abbey had survived so much, but it was not going to survive Turold because he started making his own plans to destroy the abbey and replace it with something much more suitable, much more civilized, much more Norman. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you've been enjoying learning these stories, please consider becoming a member. Membership is what pays for things like me acquiring a copy of the Gesta. If it wasn't for the support of the members, things like this would not be possible. And so if you can afford it, please consider signing up for a membership. It costs, I mean, with inflation these days, less than a latte per month. Thanks for listening.